Almighty and everlasting God, the comfort of the sad, the strength of them that suffer. Let the prayers of thy children who cry out of any tribulation come unto thee. And unto every Christian soul that is distressed, grant mercy, grant relief, grant refreshment. And to our beleaguered country, we pray your mercy, that this cycle of violence might end, and that we might continue to be that which you have called us to be, a city set upon a hill. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today is our last class for the next two weeks. Um, because, of course, next week is Holy Week, and the week after that, you've heard me say before, Jesus has come out of the tomb, but we feel as though we're about to go into it. So we will take a break for the next two weeks, then we will come back and have a week, and then we'll take another break for Tea Room. So uh, it's a little bit choppy at this point, but nevertheless... So no class uh, next week, but there will, however, be a grandparents prayer drop-in. So for those of you who are grandparents, and uh, this is an opportunity for you to gather and pray for your grandchildren, that's going to be taking place between 11 and noon in the chapel next Thursday, in the chapel. So um, we won't have class, but you'll have an opportunity. And of course, I commend to you all of the Holy Week services that are going to be taking place. We'll have a service here at the church every single day of the week, an early morning service on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 8 o'clock in the church. And then we'll have the Monday, Thursday service. We'll have the Good Friday service. There'll be one at noon, which is the traditional Good Friday liturgy. And then we will have Stations of the Cross. Weather permitting, the Stations of the Cross will be outside. If the weather does not cooperate, we'll move it inside into the church. Holy Saturday, um, normally there are no services on Holy Saturday because we commemorate the fact that the Lord was buried in the tomb. But there will be an Easter egg hunt, so come and join us for that. That's always fun to see the children have the Easter egg hunt. And then, of course, we have a number of services on Easter Day, so come and celebrate with us the resurrection of our Lord and the hope that we have in the empty tomb. But today, we are in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to go ahead and read through verses 26 and following. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, where the Apostle Paul writes these words, "'Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words.'" And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. One of the things that you'll notice as we make our way through this eighth chapter of Romans is that there is a clear and steady progression it doesn't take much to realize that the Apostle Paul was a very rational and ordered thinker. And you can see this, particularly in this eighth chapter. Uh, we said that this eighth chapter of Romans is a chapter about assurance. The first seven chapters were a slow and difficult climb. But when you get to eighth, the eighth chapter, it's like you've reached the Everest of this epistle. Some would say the Everest of the entire New Testament. When Paul suddenly breaks out and says, yes, we were under the judgment of God. Yes, there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. But now a righteousness, this alien righteousness has come to us from God, whereby we who were once far off can be brought near. We who were once aliens and strangers can now be adopted into the family of God and we can become his children. It's a wonderful chapter. And as I said, it's meant to assure us as Christians I think I pointed out to you in the past that Martin Luther really wasn't all that effective, even though he was well-trained, he was an Augustinian monk, even though he was a priest of the church, even though he had a doctorate in theology, he really wasn't making all that much a difference for Christ in the world. And part of that was due to the fact that he lived in fear and anxiety about his relationship with God. But once he came to the realization that he could be adopted into the family of God and that nothing Nothing whatsoever could ever separate him from the love of God. 
that not even he himself could separate himself from the love of God. Well, all of a sudden, Martin Luther's life was transformed. And as you know, he went forth and ultimately transformed all of Western culture and by consequence, all of the world. Well, that's what God wants for us. If we're living in fear and anxiety about our eternal destiny, we're not going to be much good for anybody, let alone for God. And so what he wants us to have is an absolute assurance in our spirit that we belong to him and nothing, no matter what comes our way, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing can separate us from his love. So that's what this eighth chapter is all about. And so what Paul does is he begins by talking, first of all, about the fact that you and I have been adopted into the family of God. We are no longer mere creatures of God. We have become sons of God. And because we are sons of God, he says, we are also fellow heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus will one day be given to us. So we are children of God, which means that we can approach God not as this sort of distant, removed deity, but we can actually approach God as our Abba, our Father, our Daddy. It is that kind of intimate relationship. But we've noted that Paul, once he talks about the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, after he's talked about the fact that we have been adopted into the family of God, he then raises this whole subject of Suffering. And we said that seems rather odd. Why in the world does Paul, once he's talking about assurance, talking about sonship, suddenly raise the question of suffering? And we said there were two reasons for this. One reason, of course, is that Paul is a realist and he recognizes that suffering and difficulty are part and parcel of human existence. None of us escapes it. But the other reason that Paul brings up suffering in particular is because he knows that it's actually proof of the fact that we are part of the family of God. I mean, Jesus said to his disciples on one occasion, he said, if the world has hated me, understand the world is going to hate you. That, that's the evidence of the fact that you are actually following me. Because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. You are living in a counter-cultural way. And the world doesn't like it when we don't go its way. So if you're facing persecution for the sake of the cross, well, Jesus says that's actually evidence, that's proof that you do indeed belong to him. He also points out that because God is at work in our lives for our ultimate good, even the sufferings that we experience can be a means of equipping us, training us in righteousness. It can also be a means of discipline, and I think I pointed out to you that there's a difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline is designed to build us up. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not painful. Frequently, discipline is painful. But the Bible reminds us that God only disciplines those he loves, just as every good parent disciplines their children. I would go so far as to say maybe that's part of the problem in our culture today is that parents are loath to discipline their children. But God is a good parent, and he does discipline us. He disciplines us for our good. Finally, Paul points out that our suffering can actually empower our Christian witness. It can actually make us more effective. We talked about the fact that when Jesus was dying on the cross, the thing that so impressed the Roman centurion who was there gambling for the Lord's garments was the fact that Jesus did not rail against those who were persecuting him. But he prayed that the Father might forgive them, for they knew not what they were doing. And when Jesus expired, breathed his last upon the cross, we're told that that Roman centurion cried out, surely this man was the Son of God. I think I pointed out to you that to me, that's the greatest miracle, or one of the greatest miracles of Good Friday. Lots of extraordinary things took place, but this hardened Roman soldier, seeing Jesus suffer, but still never lose his love. Well, that was a powerful thing, and it broke his hardened heart. So Jesus talks about, or Paul talks about assurance. He talks about the fact that we have been adopted into the family of God, sons and heirs. He talks about the fact that suffering is actually, actually the evidence of the fact that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we are actually his sons and daughters. 
But he reminds us that as bad as the suffering is, as difficult as the disappointments may be, they are not the final word. And that's why he says the sufferings of the present time cannot be compared to what? To the glory, he says, that is to be revealed. The glory, the majesty, the effulgence that will be ours one day. But in the meantime, until that moment, yes, he says, the creation groans. The whole of creation groans, longing for the redemption of mankind. Because once we are redeemed, once the Adam project is put back on track, then you and I can fulfill our God-given calling. We can begin to extend, as it were, the blessings of Eden. Remember those paintings by Thomas Cole? We can begin to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of the created order. But until mankind is fulfilling his job as God's region over the created order, the world groans as in travail. But, Paul reminds us, it's groaning as in travail. As a woman who is expecting a child or delivering a child, it is painful, but we know that ultimately there will be, God willing, a happy issue from this. And so he says, we groan, the world groans, we ourselves groan, longing for the redemption of our bodies. I don't know about you, but I long for the redemption of my body. <laughs> that, that, that the sufferings, the pains, the illnesses, the weaknesses, the deficiencies of our physical being might one day be redeemed that we might experience exactly what Jesus Christ experienced. We're getting ready to celebrate Easter. Did you ever notice that when Jesus was resurrected, he had a physical body? That was a physical body. We know that. The, the Gospels go to great lengths. None of this nonsense, by the way, about you know what really happened on Easter was just the spirit of Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples. That's a bunch of hogwash. The Gospels go to great lengths to make the point that Jesus was raised physically, bodily, from the dead. One of my favorite parts about the Gospel accounts of this is we're told that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples and he ate broiled fish. Do you remember that account? I think it's fascinating that the account tells us it was broiled. If this was a made-up account, nobody would have told you it was broiled fish or fried fish. They would have simply said he ate fish. The fact that the gospel writers put in that little detail, it's, it's just insight into the truth of the account. Why did they say it was broiled fish? Because that's what, they, that's what it was. That's what they saw. It was a physical resurrection, a bodily resurrection. Jesus said, come, take a look at the nail prints in my hands, the holes in my feet. Come, take a look, probe the wound in my side. Go ahead and do it. But even though it was a physical, bodily resurrection, you'll notice that Jesus was able to do things with that body that he had never been able to do prior to Easter morning. He was able to pass back and forth between heaven and earth. He was able to appear out of nothing, just appear in their presence and vanish in the same way from their sight. Now, you know, one day we're going to be given a body like that, a perfect body, a renewed body, a body that is incorruptible. You understand that the resurrection was not a resuscitation. There's only one person in the Bible who was ever resurrected, and that's Jesus. Now you might say, well, what about Lazarus? What about the widow of Nain's son? What about Jairus' daughter? They came back from the dead. Yes, they did. But it was not a resurrection. This is an important distinction, by the way. It was a resuscitation. Now, what's the difference between the two? A resuscitation is when somebody is brought back from the dead... Now, sometimes we talk about this and you hear somebody's been in an accident and they resuscitate them. Well, the idea here is that these people were all dead. 
I mean, they weren't just in a coma or anything like that. They were actually dead. But the point is that when Jesus raised them, he raised them with their same mortal physical body. And every single one of those people died again. That, that's the point. It was a corruptible body. He brought it back to life, but it was the same body. It was still subject to sickness. It was still subject to death. And I've always said, I find these three people to be very pitiful because, my goodness, they all died again. There's a story in the New Testament in the book of Acts about Paul preaching on one occasion, and he was going on and on, and it was a hot night in a closed room, and, you know, sometimes preachers have a tendency to go on and on. You might be thinking, well, there's one right up there doing that right now. I don't know. But Paul was going on and on and on, and finally this one man who was sitting in the window became drowsy and fell out. That's an encouraging story for me because it says that even if people fell asleep during Paul's sermons, I can take heart. But he fell out of the window. And when they picked him up, he was dead. And you know that Paul went down and he brought him back to life. That was a resuscitation, but Eutychus died again. A resurrection is what Jesus experienced in which he was brought back to life. It was a physical body, but it was an incorruptible body. Jesus was raised never to die again. And the promise is that that's what's going to happen to you and me. Hallelujah. Dying once is bad enough. But remember for the Christians, I, I, I love the way that Ken Boa, those of you who heard Ken Boa this past weekend in the Rector's Forum, he had a wonderful illustration. He said, we have to remember that we, we tend to think that we are in the land of the living and we're going to the land of the dying. He said, actually, because of the resurrection, you and I are in the land of the dying and we're going to the land of the living. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans. He's talking about the fact that we groan for the redemption of our bodies, these bodies that are dying, that are decaying, that are subject to illness, cancer, death. We're looking forward to the day when that shall be no more. Now, if you follow this progression, it's no accident then that Paul comes now to the subject of prayer. It makes perfect sense. We are sons and heirs, but we endure suffering in this life. But even the sufferings that we endure are signs of our sonship, and it does not compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. But yes, in the meantime, until all is made plain, all is made clear to us, we will continue to groan. The creation groans, we ourselves groan, and that is why prayer, he says, is so important that we pray likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought you ever had that experience in the midst of life's groanings when you really don't even know what to pray for you know you ought to pray but you're at a point where you don't even know what to say Well, Paul says that is not a unique experience. It is something that we are all subject to. Now, the Bible is very clear. This is made clear over and over again that prayer is a great privilege for Christians. It's a wonderful privilege. Um, Jesus certainly prayed. You see this at the beginning of Mark's gospel very early on. If you go to the first chapter of Mark's gospel, where, well, let's just do it. Let's go to the first chapter of Mark's gospel. Some of you are going to, with me, God willing, to um, the Holy Land, and you'll have an opportunity to see this. We're going to be at this very site. It's Mark chapter 1. We'll start at verse 29. Jesus and his disciples were in Capernaum. And they had just been in the synagogue. And when the service ended, we pick up the account at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Incidentally, this house is still there. Um, we have 
pretty good evidence that this was actually the home of St. Peter in Capernaum. Um, some of the earliest Christian graffiti is located there, indicating that something significant happened here in Capernaum. We know exactly where the synagogue was because there's a second century synagogue, the ruins of a second century synagogue that had been built on a first century synagogue. So we know exactly where the synagogue was. And it says he walked out of the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. It's a stone's throw away this place that had this earliest Christian graffiti. So you can actually go and stand on the site of where this took place. And we're told they left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. I pointed out on Sunday, that, or a couple of Sundays ago, that infection was a major killer in the first century world. They didn't have anything like antibiotics or anything like that. And so if a person had a fever, it was probably due to some sort of an infection, and it could be lethal. So we're told that Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her, and he came in and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, but he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed." And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. You'll notice that sandwiched between Jesus going out and preaching and healing Peter's mother-in-law, he spent time doing what he spent time in prayer. He got up very early in the morning. He made this a priority in his life. And the Bible says that it should be a priority in our lives as well. Jesus sets us the example. Now, the disciples recognized this fact. This was one of the things that they noted about Jesus. I've said before that one of the things that so impressed even Jesus' enemies about him was the fact that Jesus was a man who was filled with serenity. I know you all know that serenity prayer that Niebuhr wrote, Lord, help me to accept the things that I cannot change courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference, that serenity prayer. Serenity is something that we all long for. Another way of describing it is what we say at the end of the liturgy, the peace of God which passes human understanding. To have peace, contentment in the midst of any circumstances. Well, most of us don't have that. That's why we have to pray for it. Jesus had serenity. He just never seemed to be flustered, even when they were caught in the storm and the disciples were up there bailing madly. And where is Jesus? He's asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. He just never seemed to be anxious or, as I said, flustered. Jesus had a great peace about him. And one of the things that the disciples recognized was that that peace, that serenity that they did not have, but he did have, that they wanted, was a serenity that came as a consequence of his prayer life. That's an important lesson for us. You're, you're longing for serenity? Well, as the old song says, take it to the Lord in prayer. And so the disciples came to Jesus on one occasion and they said, we see you pray, teach us to pray. And you know, Jesus gave them that model for prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus gave them a model for prayer. So prayer is a privilege Jesus himself made prayer a priority. He taught his disciples to pray. And the New Testament, the book of James, says that prayer makes a difference. The prayer of the righteous man or woman availeth much, is the way the King James Version puts it, and I like that version of it. It availeth much. It makes a difference. But how many of you, just being honest find prayer to be difficult. 
You ever find prayer to be difficult? You ever find prayer to be problematic? Listen, I find it to be difficult. I think most of us, at one point or another, find prayer to be difficult. That's exactly what Paul is acknowledging here. He says, if you don't find prayer to be difficult from time to time, then you don't need any help in prayer. But we do. Most of us do find prayer to be difficult. Now, that's not to say that we don't enjoy prayer. That's not to say that some people have an easier job at praying than others. But at one point or another, we all struggle with prayer. And from time to time, especially in the midst of the groanings of this life, we have questions about prayer. Like, what should I pray for? You ever wondered about that? I mean, what should I really be asking God to do in this situation? We already acknowledge that there are times when we don't even know what to pray for. There are, there are times when we're just so overwhelmed, we don't even know what to ask for. So that certainly makes prayer difficult and problematic for many of us. We sometimes just don't know what to pray for. Then there's the whole question of, can I pray with absolute confidence? I mean, should I pray in faith? And by that I mean, should I name it and claim it? Because that's what many people do. I'm reminded of something that Tammy Faye Baker said. She said, I ask God every three years for a new car. And she said, and I tell him what color. Well, that's sort of a name it and claim it. And you hear people sometimes say that. I claim healing in the name of Jesus. Well, is that wrong? Is that presumptuous? Or is that praying in faith, in confidence? Which, which one is it? How about this one? What if I pray wrongly? What if I don't say the right words? What if I don't ask for the right things? What is God going to do in a situation like that? There's always this one. What difference does prayer really make? I know the book of James says that the prayer of the righteous availeth much, but on the other hand, we already know that God notes even the fall of the sparrow from the sky. He knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. He's going to work all things together for our good no matter what. So what's the point of praying? What difference does it make? And then there's this one. If God is immortal, invisible, immutable, God only wise, unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Alpha and the Omega, does prayer really change God's mind? And given the fact that I'm a finite creature, given the fact that I see through a glass darkly, I think I know what I need, but maybe I don't know what I need. Do I really want to pray in such a way that I change God's mind? Because if God's mind is perfect, why would I want to change it? How many of you have ever asked those kinds of questions? Or at least wondered about those sorts of things? If you have, you're not alone. We've all wondered about those things from time to time, and these are the things that makes prayer difficult. Well, we can take heart from the fact that Paul acknowledges the fact that prayer is difficult. That's, that's what he's doing here in verses 26 and following. He's acknowledging the fact that, yes, we need to pray, especially in the midst of life's groanings, especially because we're caught right now between this world of suffering and the glory that is to be, and yet he acknowledges the fact that sometimes, even when we pray, and even though prayer is important, we don't know what to pray for, we don't know how to pray, and so we need help. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What's the main reason, Paul says, that we have trouble praying? It's right there in verse 26. What is it? It's our weakness. That's why you and I struggle in prayer. It's because of our weakness. Now, I want you to understand that weakness is not sinfulness. That's not what Paul is saying here. Now, that's not to say that sin cannot be an impediment sometimes to our prayer life. 
or to God even hearing us in our prayers. That's what David says in Psalm 66. He says, my iniquities, my sins get in the way of my prayers. You can't hear them because one of the things that sin does is it brings a wall of separation between us and God. So it's not to say that our sinfulness cannot sometimes get in the way. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. He doesn't say, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our sinfulness, for we do not know what to pray. He says our weakness. And weakness is just an aspect of who we are as mortal creatures, isn't it? Our weakness. What does Paul mean when he says weakness? Well, he means a couple of things. First, um, what he means is our physical weakness. How many of you, <laughs> this is what we do. Kristen and I, when we were first married and we had children, we would um, get into bed and we would say our prayers together. We still do. Um, but we quickly learned when you have little children and you've been up and you know you're going to be up all night that you probably need to pray before you get into bed because we get into bed and start to pray and... That was it. We were out. You know, sometimes I would squeeze her hand and said, are you awake? No response. And sometimes it was the other way around. It was her turn to pray. And I prayed for so long that <laughs> when she started to pray, I was out. We understand that. Have you ever had that experience where you actually fall asleep in prayer? It happened to the disciples for Pete's sakes. When Jesus was in agony in the garden, he took the disciples there and he asked them to pray. He took three of them aside, Peter, James, and John, and he said, come and, and pray with me, for I am in agony here in this garden and I, I could use your help. Pray with me. And we're told that Jesus went back and he found that they were asleep. And he woke them up and he said, could, could you not watch with me for even an hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh, it's weak. So one of the reasons why you and I find prayer to be a struggle is because of our own physical constitutions. We, we are weak. And sometimes, yes, we, we struggle. We get distracted. Do you ever have that happen? You know, you're, you're in church and, and you're supposed to be praying at the beginning of the service. I, I, that's the way we do it as Anglicans. When you come into the church, you talk to God. After the service, you talk to each other. So you come in and you get down on your knees and you're saying your prayers and you know you're supposed to be preparing your heart for worship. But then this lady comes down with this enormous hat on her head. And you're just looking at that all of a sudden. Or the man comes down the aisle and his shoes squeak and you're supposed to be concentrating on God, but instead you're looking at whose shoes are squeaking over there or whose cell phone is going off and how easily distracted we are. And so, yes, we find prayer to be a difficult thing because of our physical weaknesses. But that's not just what Paul is talking about. What Paul is really talking about here in Romans chapter 8 is the weakness that comes from our ignorance. It is true. We, we don't know what to pray for. And part of that is due to the fact that we do see through a glass dimly. Little children often don't know what's best for them. That's why they need parents to guide them. And oftentimes you and I do not. Notice that Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He doesn't say the Spirit helps you in your weakness. Paul includes himself in this. That should be a great comfort to us. If you struggle with prayer, be encouraged that the Apostle Paul says that he struggled in prayer. And he struggled in prayer because of his weakness. And it wasn't just his physical weakness, it was the fact that oftentimes he didn't understand the will of God. That, that's what we're really longing for, isn't it? We want to know what God's plan is. What is God's will for our life? And of course, God's will for our life and understanding God's will for our life is inextricably tied to this whole notion of prayer. But if we struggle in prayer, then we're going to struggle with discerning what God's will is for us. And Paul says that even he, even the great apostle Paul, the author of this great letter, nevertheless struggled. There are great examples in the scripture of people who struggled with prayer for this very reason. Think about Job. 
Job struggled in prayer. Now, that's not to say that he didn't pray. He did, but he struggled to understand. And oftentimes when he prayed, he prayed in ignorance. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn for a minute to Job. And let me show you what I mean. Um, the book of Job is easy to find. Close your Bible, open it up to the center. You're going to hit Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Psalms or Proverbs, go one book to the left if you hit Psalms. If you hit Proverbs, go two books to the left and you'll hit Job. And go to the very first chapter of Job. That's where we're going to start. Now you know, I think everybody does know, that Job is this great book about suffering. Incidentally, this is the oldest book in the Bible. Did you know that? The book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. But Job, chapter 1. Now, Job endures suffering. Uh, he endures all these terrible calamities that come upon him and upon his family. What Job doesn't understand is that he's actually a kind of collateral damage. He has been caught up in a cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And in Job chapter 1... This is what we read. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Notice how he is described here. He is described as blameless and upright. Now, I pointed out a few weeks ago in the sermon on Jesus' healing of the blind man that we often assume that when somebody is going through a tough time, it is because God is punishing them. It's because either they have done something wrong or somebody close to them has done something wrong and they are paying the consequence of that. That's what we often think, isn't it? Bad things happen to bad people. Well, it's clear right here at the beginning of Job that Job was blameless. He was upright. He was a man who feared God and turned away from evil. But when these calamities, these disasters, these difficulties begin to happen in his life, Job's trying to make sense of it, just like you and I try to make sense of it. And his assumption is that he's done something wrong. So turn to Job chapter Seven for a minute, and look at what Job says. See if you can relate to Job when disasters, tragedies come into your life. Job writes, How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Those are powerful words, aren't they? We know exactly how Job feels. And his assumption was he must have done something wrong. And that's why God has made him his mark but of course, the reality is Job hadn't done anything wrong. God himself acknowledged that he was a blameless and upright man. So this is a clear example of a man who's going through a tough time and he's praying, but he's playing in ignorance. He has completely misread the situation. And let's be honest, there are times in our lives when we are praying and we completely misread the situation. There's another example, and that is Elijah. Remember Elijah, he had that great victory on Mount Carmel. And again, those of you going to the Holy Land, you'll be able to stand on the top of Mount Carmel and look over the Valley of Armageddon. Well, that's where this great battle took place between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And he had a great victory. He called down fire from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice and it licked up the water and the trench around the altar. It was a great victory. And we're told that all, all the priests of Baal were slaughtered because of their wickedness. It was a great victory. 
But where do you find Elijah next? He's fled because Queen Jezebel is angry about what has happened. She's intent on taking his life. This man who'd won this great victory, who'd seen God call down fire from heaven, is now hiding in a cave, and he is praying, and he is saying, Oh, I am the only one left. How many of you look at American culture and think we're the only sane people left? That's exactly what Elijah was saying. Now, was he the only one left? No, God said there were many others that had not yet bowed the knee. But see, his circumstances led him to pray, but to pray wrongly. How about the Apostle Paul? Paul himself, who acknowledges the fact that there were times when he was weak. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about some sort of physical ailment that he was struggling with. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. Now, we're not entirely sure what this is. Over the years, there's been all kinds of speculation as to what it is. I think the general consensus is that it was probably something with Paul's eyesight, maybe, because he talks about writing with large letters and using scribes and so forth. For all we know, Paul was suffering from what we would call macular degeneration or something like that. We really don't know, except that Paul was suffering with something physically that he felt actually was detrimental to his ministry. It was causing him to be less effective than he might otherwise be. And so he prayed that God might remove it. I mean, he knew that he could do it. He had seen Jesus heal. I mean, he knew of Jesus healing people on any number of occasions. Indeed, Paul had been used by the power of the Holy Spirit to heal people on other occasions. So he was praying that God would do the same thing in his own life. He said, I prayed once, I got no response. I prayed twice, I got no response. I prayed a third time, and the response was, no, your weakness is my plan. My power is made perfect in your frailty. Paul assumed when he prayed that God wanted him to be as effective as he possibly could be, and to be as effective as he possibly could be meant that he needed to be strong, vigorous, robust, physically speaking. And God said, actually, <laughs> it's quite different than that. And let me give you a final example, and maybe we have to be very careful here. This is the most encouraging one of all. Turn to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but as you will. Jesus was, of course, fully God. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father. By whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation, what? Came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, his mother. Jesus was God, fully God. You do understand that Jesus is as much God as God the Father is God. And Jesus is as much God as God, the Holy Spirit is God. Now, they are three distinct persons, but it is one triune Godhead. He is God. 
But when he came down, those of you who were at the Wednesday night service, I read to you from Philippians, that great hymn of Kenosis, Philippians chapter 2. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he what? Emptied himself. Now that's critical. What that means is that even though he was truly God, fully God, there is a sense in which Jesus limited himself. He limited himself on this earth. We know that because when he took on flesh, he took on corruptible human flesh. He took on the flesh that is subject to disease and sickness. He took on the flesh that was capable of dying and in fact did die. And there are indicators in the scriptures that when Jesus took on that flesh, when he emptied himself, as it were, he still remained God, but he limited himself in terms of his knowledge. We have a great example of this. On one occasion, Jesus said, not even the Son of Man knows when he will come back in glory. Only the Father knows. Not even I know. And it's my party. Only the Father knows. So Jesus was limited, and we see him here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He understands that he's come into the world for this very purpose. You'll recall that at Caesarea Philippi, when he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They all had an answer, and then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, that's right, Peter, you're right. Now, let me tell you what that means. I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to die on the cross. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. So he understood that's what he'd come into the world to do. Now, here he is in Gethsemane praying to the Father that if this cup can pass, if there's another way to do it, let it be so. Now, he does say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We're told that the angels came and ministered to him. He came to the realization that, yes, this is the only way. And he left the Garden of Gethsemane, even though he was bound hand and foot like a common criminal. Nevertheless, he left there resolute, prepared to go to the cross, no turning back. But at the very least, it shows us that Jesus struggled because of the weakness that we all have as human beings. So prayer can be difficult for all of these reasons. But, but, this is Paul's great message. Go back to Romans chapter 8 now. The good news is that help is on the way. Help is on the way. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Critical word here, of course, is that word helps. The Holy Spirit comes to help us. The word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit in John's gospel in several places is the word parakletos or paraclete, not parakeet, or a paracletes, but paraclete, or parakletos. And it literally means an advocate. It's a legal term. We've got a few lawyers in the room today. What do you do with a lawyer? You hire a lawyer so that he can do what? Plead your case. And that's how John describes the Holy Spirit. He is the one who comes alongside to assist us and to plead our case before the Father. But what is interesting is that that is not the word that Paul uses here. In fact, this translation helps is really a weak translation. Now, I'm not sure that there's a better word in English for this, but the Greek actually is much richer, much fuller in terms of its meaning. It's a rather long word. Sunante lobanathai is the Greek word. And you'll see up there on your screen that it is actually a combination of three Greek words, which is often the case in Greek. The full word is sunante bonathai, lobanathai. Soon means with, 
Anti in Greek means for or in place of. And the important word is the verb labano. And it literally means to take hold of, to remove, or to bear. To bear. This is not a case, you see, Paul is saying, in which the Holy Spirit merely comes alongside us to assist us, to plead our case. But rather, this is a case in which the Holy Spirit comes and along with us, alongside us, carries the burden. It's like moving a piano. You know, you've got two men and they've got to move a piano. One man can't do it. Not even two men normally can do it unless they're two really hefty men. But it's no good to come alongside and advise somebody as to how they ought to do it. It's, it's something completely different to actually put your shoulder underneath the piano and to lift it. And what's interesting is that is the word that Paul uses to describe the Holy Spirit's work in prayer. Yes, he is the one who comes alongside. Yes, he does plead our case before the judge of the universe. But he is also the one that when it comes to prayer, gets underneath it, as it were, and shoulders the burden with us. That should be a tremendous encouragement to you and to me. And he shoulders that burden for us because he knows that in our ignorance, the burden is heavy. That when you're in the midst of this fallen world, when you have a body that is corruptible, when you are weak and easily distracted, when you simply do not know what to pray for because you see through a glass dimly, because you're a finite creature, isn't it a comfort to know that there is one who is willing to come alongside and help lift the burden? And that is what God, the Holy Spirit, does for us. He is, whether we realize it or not, he's actually lifting the burden for us. The other word that Paul uses here is that he helps us in our weaknesses, but he also intercedes for us. Intercedes. I want to give you a great example of intercession. Turn to Luke for just a moment, the end of Luke's gospel. All of these passages are particularly poignant as we come to Holy Week. But this is Luke chapter 22. You will recall that at the Last Supper, Peter made a tremendous boast, didn't he? And that boast was that even if all the other disciples deserted Jesus, he would not. Chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel, beginning at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, now Peter, remember who you are. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. But even though you'll have that moment of weakness, Peter, I want you to know I've, I've prayed for you. Satan wanted you. He wanted to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you have fallen, you'll be restored and encourage your brothers. Who knows? Maybe that's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter could have been Judas. But Jesus prayed for him. Do you understand that if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is praying for you? interceding for you, helping to shoulder the burden of your prayers even when you are groaning under the weight of your own ignorance. That's the promise. The other word that we should note, of course, is that word groaning. He helps us. He intercedes for us. 
and he groans alongside us. We've seen a progression here as well with that word groan. We've seen in verse 22 that the creation is groaning. In verse 23, we said that we ourselves groan, longing for the redemption of our bodies. Well, here we're told that the Holy Spirit groans. Now, that's really interesting because the Holy Spirit, as the Godhead, does not, is not subject to the same kinds of emotions that we are. So what is Paul talking about here? He's simply reminding us of the fact that it is a hopeful groaning. On all three of those occasions, it's a hopeful groaning. The creation groans in expectation, what? Of redemption. And we groan, hopefully, like a woman in childbirth, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And the Holy Spirit groans, knowing that one day the burden shall be lifted. So as we wrap it up, let me give you some just final words about prayer. It's not going to answer all of those questions that you had at the beginning, in part because, well, we don't understand so much in our weakness. But here are some final thoughts. First of all, the Bible tells us that we need to pray. We are supposed to pray, and prayer does make a difference. Listen, folks, you should pray if for no other reason then it allows you to come into the presence of God Almighty. There's a lot in your life that you do not understand. There are times when you don't know what to pray for. But isn't it wonderful to know that you can come and lay it before the Lord, the King of the universe, knowing that He will do for you greater things than you can ask for or imagine. How many of you would love to have an audience with the Pope or an audience with the King? You can have an audience with the king of kings. Second thing to remember is this. Prayer is not going to be easy. Why should it be? What in the Christian life is easy? If your life as a Christian is easy, you're probably not living as a Christian. I mean, Jesus said that to his disciples. In this life, you will have trouble. He said, the world hated me. The world's going to hate you. Prayer is going to be a struggle. The Christian life is a struggle. It is a struggle, as Paul says, because of our weakness. But recognize that the real point of prayer is this, not to change God, but to change us. To bring us into alignment with God's will, God's plan, that we may begin to discern what he wants for us. It's not that we simply use this sort of formula, we, we say these things in order to change God's mind. God's mind is perfect. You do not want to change God's plans or God's mind. What you do want to do is to come into alignment with his plans so that you can begin to understand his good and perfect will for your life. And if you find that difficult, well, be encouraged because you do have help. God, the Holy Spirit, is helping you to shoulder the burden and carry the load. James Montgomery Boyce has a wonderful illustration in his commentary on Romans that I think helps us to understand why we should persist in prayer and the difference that prayer makes. He tells about a man in his middle age years where he had, um, as a young boy, he had practiced the violin. But he had sort of given it up. He would play around with it from time to time, but, but he really hadn't practiced. But he decided he really wanted to get back into it. And so there was this weekly broadcast that was put out on the radio that was a classical concert series. And... Every afternoon when that came on, he would get out his violin and he would play along with the orchestra. Now, when he first started off, he didn't sound too good. And there were a lot of wrong notes. But he kept at it, week after week, playing along with the orchestra. Now, what's interesting is the orchestra plays along in perfect harmony and perfect tempo, regardless of the fact that he is missing the notes or getting the wrong notes. 
But he keeps at it for so long that there comes a point, maybe after years of practice, that as he's playing along with the orchestra, he's actually doing pretty well. It's not a case where his playing changed the orchestra. But there is the case where playing along with the orchestra changed him. That's what prayer can do for you and for me. The more we keep at it, it's not a case where we change God's mind, but it is a case where we begin to understand the mind of God better. We come more in line with the plans, the purposes of God. And in so doing, what we discover is the peace of God, which passes human understanding. So keep at it, and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for these encouraging words from Paul's epistle to the Romans. Good words for us as we prepare to take a break from this class for a few weeks and as we prepare to head into Holy Week, this most important week of the year. We remember how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, make us prayerful people that we may enter into the throne room, into your presence. Help us to be like that man with his violin, to keep at it, not so that we might change your mind, your good and perfect will is what we want, but that we might begin to understand it, discern it, and find that serenity that Jesus found in prayer. For we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.